This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, the future of a woman's right to choose an abortion is in jeopardy in many states across the country as an unprecedented leak of a draft Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade creates the political equivalent of an earthquake. There is turmoil around the nation as Republicans and Democrats scramble to figure out what the political and the practical impact of new abortion restrictions could be. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will be with us. Plus, we'll hear from South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Then, Ukraine's military is on high alert this weekend, bracing for more attacks as Vladimir Putin plans to celebrate Russia's annual Victory Day. Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, will be here with the latest. Plus, we'll hear from the CEO of Lockheed Martin, Jim Tacklett, about what his company is doing to help provide weapons for the war effort in Ukraine. And finally, we will take a look at the politics of this year's round of congressional redistricting fights with former Obama Attorney General Eric Holder. His new book is Our Unfinished March. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. and welcome to Face the Nation. It has been a turbulent week across the country as one of the most esteemed institutions in our government, the Supreme Court, experienced something that happens all the time here in Washington, the leak of a document to the media. But this leak was explosive. Not only does it draw into question the sanctity of the court, but if the draft opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito holds Roe versus Wade may be overturned early this summer. Currently, abortion access is federally protected up to the point of viability. If overturned, abortion could become illegal or significantly restricted in 23 states. Republicans have been reserved in their reaction, but Democrats are furious. And we go now to the top Democrat in Congress, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who joins us this Mother's Day from San Francisco. Happy Mother's Day to you, Madam Speaker. Um, Thank you. Happy Mother's Day to you, Margaret. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And before we get to abortion, we did have this surprise visit on Mother's Day by the First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, to Ukraine. Last Sunday, you were in Kyiv meeting with Ukraine's president, how quickly can Congress deliver this $33 billion in aid that has been promised? I think we will be able to do it as quickly as possible. Uh, we have great part bipartisanship in terms of our support uh, for the fight for democracy that the people of Ukraine are making. Uh, we have respect for the strategy of the president of Ukraine. And uh, we have a recognition of the need for weapons, for sanction, more weapons, more sanctions, more economic assistance, and more humanitarian assistance. I was very proud to be there with my colleagues um, uh, to talk about those very specific issues and our bipartisan support for them. And you think you can get that done before the end of the month? I think we have to. Okay. Yeah, I think we have to. Uh, the uh, the the specificity with which we discuss these matters with the president, uh, president of, of Ukraine, uh, the connection that we have with the mm-hmm. ambassador that, whom you will have on the show later. Uh, we're very uh, current on the needs and the urgency. And again, uh, we will have bipartisanship as we go forward with it. Okay. Uh, Madam Speaker, I want to talk to you, of course, about abortion. Uh, California's governor, Gavin Newsom, said Democrats have failed to target Republicans on this issue. Here's what he had to say. Where is the Democratic Party? 
Where's the party? Why aren't we calling this out? This is a concerted, coordinated effort. And yes, they're winning. We need to stand up. Where's the counteroffensive? Madam Speaker, why were pro-abortion rights Democrats outmaneuvered? I have, I have no idea. The fact is that we have been fighting for a woman's right to choose, and that is to choose. Uh, we have been fighting against the Republicans in the Congress constantly because the fact is they're anti, not just anti-woman's right to choose in terms of uh, terminating a pregnancy, but in terms of uh, access to contraception and family planning and the rest both domestically and globally. Mm -hmm. This is a constant fight that we've had for generations, uh, decades, I should say, right. in my case, in the Congress. And uh, uh, the, uh, we had been bipartisan early on, support for a woman's right to choose, until the politics uh, have changed. And that's what happened but, to the court. Yeah. The, the, the science hasn't changed, the, but the court changed, and therefore they're deciding uh, that will be different. I have no idea why anybody would make that statement unless they were unaware of the fight that has been going on. Well, you have been fighting for decades on this issue, but back when Democrats held majorities in the House and the Senate, 2009, uh, when you were Speaker, President Obama was asked about codifying Roe versus Wade and said abortion's a moral and ethical issue and, quote, not the highest legislative priority. Do you think it was a mistake for him, for other presidents, not to push harder what, what, when uh, Democrats I, had I, the majority. If I just may, the focus we have right now is an urgent one in order to uh, uh, try to improve uh, and try to improve this, uh, what are we calling it, fake or draft decision, whatever it is. I think that this is a waste of time. The fact is, in '09, we really did not have a pro-choice uh, uh, Democratic Party. I had to fight against some of the people who did not want uh, to pass the Affordable Care Act because they were concerned that it might enable uh, more freedom of choice. It, it really didn't go down that path. Right now, we do have a pro-choice uh, Democratic Congress, and we passed the law um, a month ago, and, and last, I think, September. You did in the House. It's been a yeah. while. It's a, it's a, a number of votes. The, uh, but, but the, the votes aren't there in the Senate. Is, well, the, the Senate is—you'll have to talk to the Senate about the Senate, but I do think that it puts an urgency on what's happening in the election. Uh, two more—one or two more senators could uh, sweep back the uh, filibuster mm -hmm. rule uh, for this purpose, and then women would have a right to choose. This is about uh, something so serious and so personal and so disrespectful of women. Here we are on Mother's Day, a week where the court has slapped women in the face in terms of disrespect yeah. for their uh, judgment about the size and timing of their families. So the fact is, let's keep our eye on the ball. The ball is in the court. Uh, those justices, one of them at least said over and over again uh, that precedent, the precedence has been established again and again mm -hmm. on Roe v. Wade. and that was, so this decision is about being anti-precedent and anti-privacy. It has serious ramifications uh, as, we go, uh, as we go down this path. It, it has to be softened. I don't think there's a good outcome, but there's a better outcome as far as this is concerned. In terms again, of the— let's just be prayerful about mm -hmm. this. This is, this is uh, uh, about respect for privacy. What's next? What's next? Uh, uh, do, marriage equality, what's next? Uh, do you need to write bills to what enshrine those things? Those things you just said you're concerned about. Do you need bills to enshrine those now? Birth control Excuse access? Me? The things you think might be next. Do you need to legislate to enshrine those in law right now to protect them if you think the court may overturn? Well, the, it, what is really interesting, Margaret, about this is for decades I've been trying to say to my Republican friends and women who care about a woman's right to choose, who contribute to Planned Parenthood and all of those organizations, you can't do that and expect, you've got to weigh in with your own party on this. Barbara Bush, early on, Republicans were very much about family planning and respect uh, for women. So, so the thing is, is that most people always thought that this debate in the Congress was about the termination of a pregnancy. 
but it wasn't. My Republican colleagues have said to me on occasion, we're not for any family planning domestically or globally, because I, mm -hmm. I was trying to get them to support us on some uh, global right. uh, family planning issues. We're not for any of it. And most people don't know that. And we don't want to be, you know, we, this is a fact. This I'm, is a fact. That's where what they believe. But and given the given the, their beliefs, given the urgency with which you're speaking, the Reproductive Choice Act, two pro-abortion rights Republicans in the Senate, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, put that forward. Leader Schumer says it's not even worth putting to a vote. But when you do have Republicans interested in working together, is that a strategic mistake? You say this is an emergency. Well, it depends on what the legislation is and what the impact that it has on women's lives. Uh, the, uh, the enshrinement of Roe v. Wade into the law is the way in order to protect a woman's right to choose. Uh, I don't know why they say they're for that and can't be for this legislation. Should we all have a discussion and find our common ground? Always. Always. But this, you're either for the enshrinement of Roe v. Wade or you're not. It's the law of the land. 50, nearly 50 years, of the, the yeah. precedence, precedence of it has been reaffirmed, what, 14 times. And just because there has been, the Republicans yeah. were very clear when they had a presidential campaign that their campaign was to elect a, a president who would appoint mm -hmm. judges who would overturn Roe v. Wade. It didn't say the science would change. Right. And one more point in that regard. Mitch McConnell pulled back the, the filibuster rule in order to, to have those justices uh. confirmed uh, by 51, by not needing 60 votes by 51. So this Understand. is a political decision on the part of this camp. Okay. Uh, the rule of law in our country should be respected. Women should be respected to make their own judgments with their family, right. their doctor, their God. Speaker Pelosi, thank you for your time this morning. Yeah. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient, comfortable. Ah. The CIA director said yesterday that Russian President Vladimir Putin is doubling down on his invasion of Ukraine and does not believe that he can afford to lose. Violence is now escalating in the east. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett is in Ukraine. Charlie? Good morning, Margaret. The Ukrainian government blames Russian forces of bombing a school where dozens of people were taking shelter in Luhansk. Here in Kramatorsk, the bombardment has worsened too. This is some of the destruction left behind after a rocket attack struck several residential neighborhoods. Amid the ruins, everywhere evidence of ordinary lives violently interrupted. A woman's shoe, children's toys scattered on the ground, a favorite jacket now hanging from a tree. A few miles further east in Luhansk, emergency crews dig for survivors in a bombed school where Ukrainian authorities say 90 people were taking shelter. In Mariupol, government officials say while all women, children, and the elderly have finally escaped from the besieged steel plant, as many as 2,000 Ukrainian forces remain, some medics, some badly wounded, some still fighting to the end. 
We travel to the battered village of Velika Novosilka, around 100 miles north of Mariupol, where 10 Russian battalion groups, around 10,000 troops, have already been redeployed. U.S. and Ukrainian intelligence says those Russians are now massing on the outskirts of this town. It's clearly come under artillery attack. The explosions are ringing out now. We found Irina Ilyenko and neighbor Valentina Hajnova in the ruins of their homes. All around, shredded metal, downed trees, shattered windows, belongings blown out of bedrooms and onto branches. Can you describe what happened? I was just sitting in the corridor when the explosions happened, she said, covering my ears and praying. The explosions deafened me. Wow. Oh, my God, she says. Does that happen a lot? There's no water or electricity. She's desperate to flee, but says she can't leave her bedridden husband behind. I just want peace to come to this land, she said. I don't want any more war and anger. That village is right on the path of Russia's main advance from the south. Here, Kramatorsk is on the firing line from the north. The Russian strategy is to close that gap and surround tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops. Margaret? Charlie Daggett, thank you. And some breaking news this morning. CBS News has learned that the Biden administration is sending a small group of American diplomats, including the acting ambassador to the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, to counter Russia's Victory Day celebrations. State Department sources tell CBS that the embassy hopes to resume operations and raise the American flag there in the coming weeks. We turn now to Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova. Good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you as well uh, and to all the mothers out there. Um, President Zelensky has said that he will speak with President Biden and other world leaders this morning. What are you expecting in terms of further support? Thank you. Well, you know, as we celebrate the 77th also anniversary of the end of the World War II, it's critical that we all do everything possible to stop the war that Russian regime, very much like Nazi regime, started in Europe again. So the president will raise everything that we have been discussing during the past, this past 73 days. Uh, more military support, more sanctions, more financial support to Ukraine. We count on all of our friends and allies to help us with everything so we can stop Russia while it's still in Ukraine. President Putin is expected to make a speech tomorrow in Red Square. It's not clear exactly what he is going to announce. Um, but the CIA director said yesterday Putin is doubling down. What exactly are you preparing for? Well, we know that there are no red lines for the regime in Moscow. So we are preparing for everything. They said they were not going to, that they were not going to attack us, and they did. They said that there is no war in Ukraine for the past eight years, and we know it was. They said they didn't take the Crimea, and they did. They said they're not killing civilians, and yet we see everywhere the deaths of women, children. They torture them, they rape them, they kill them. So we can count that Putin and imperialistic Russia will do everything bad they can possibly try to do. The question is, are we all prepared the civilized world, to do everything possible to defend our democracy and freedom. And Ukraine certainly is not only ready, but shows for the past 74 days that we bravely defend those values and defend our homes. There is some speculation that uh, Putin could officially acknowledge the countries at war and then start conscripting soldiers, uh, which would help him build up that offensive in the east. Is that what you're expecting? Well, that would be the first time uh, when Putin will say the truth, that it is war and that he is in dire need of conscripting soldiers. Uh, I hope that then it will be evident for all, to all Russians uh, what they are doing in Ukraine. That's an aggressive war. They attacked a neighboring country, a peaceful country. And the question is, are they prepared to have more tens of thousands dying in Ukraine for no reason at all? The U.S. said uh, a few days ago that Russia is planning sham elections and they're going to try to annex parts of your country, Donetsk, Luhansk in the east, also Kherson. Uh, they're already renaming schools 
and streets, teaching Russian curriculum, forcing the use of their currency. So what is dismantling this part of your country actually do? Because if you want to get to a peace negotiation, they're already sort of swallowing parts of your country and trying to integrate it. Well, in addition to all the war crimes they're doing in Ukraine, this is part of their MO. We saw it in Donetsk and Lugansk, which they occupied in 2014. We saw it in Crimea. So they try to create the sham elections. Uh, they cannot find enough Ukrainians to participate in them, as we saw in Kherson, as we see in other places. We will never recognize it. The whole world will never recognize it. And we will do everything possible on the battlefield, but also diplomatically, to restore our territorial integrity and sovereignty. So the world will never recognize it. I'm Meaning. positive. I'm positive. Ukraine has to be whole within the internationally recognized borders. So those sanctions the West has put on would stay in place. Absolutely. Is another way to say that. Um, you know, we are seeing these reports out of Mariupol that there were some successful evacuations. Um, it's just a dire humanitarian situation there. Can you tell us what is happening on the ground? Who is left there? Our brave defenders, lots of wounded, uh, a lot of doctors are still there. So as of yesterday, we saw the reports and our president has done everything possible to evacuate civilians. Now, while that is a success, of course, to get the civilians, women and children out, we have to remember that 95% of Mariupol is destroyed, that tens of thousands of civilians died in Mariupol, were killed by Russians. Actually, more Mariupol citizens were killed by Russians in two months than by Nazis during two years of Nazi occupation in, uh, during the World War II. So we are calling on everyone to do everything possible and impossible to get our wounded soldiers, to get our heroes, to create all possible corridors in order to get our people still out from Azovstal, where they bravely defend the Ukrainian flag and Ukraine in Mariupol. That's that steel plant where yes. um, fighters have been holed up with some civilians. President Zelensky said influential states were involved in efforts to rescue hundreds of wounded fighters there. Um, who exactly is helping? What, what does that mean? Is that on the ground help? Is this just diplomatic? Well, we know that UN Secretary General has been in, in direct contact with our president, but also with others. Uh, there are a lot of diplomatic uh, discussions with other states uh, on that. So uh, I think, you know, after the war, we will be able to talk about all the efforts that were, that were done. But Israel, on, for example. But on the ground, it's, uh, you know, it's our brave Ukrainians. And while evacuating civilians, we have to know that so many of our soldiers from Azov Steel, from this plant, who were try helping civilians to get out, have been killed and wounded during these attempts too. How significant um, is the intelligence sharing that the West is providing to Ukraine? We, we hear a lot about the weapons, but what about the actual sharing of information? Uh, I think, you know, the sharing of information between Ukraine and the West with all of our friends and allies is at the level which we never had before and we really appreciate it. Ambassador, thank you for your time today. Thank you. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation, so stay with us. We want to turn back to the fight over abortion rights with Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. She's in Charleston this morning. Happy Mother's Day to you, Congresswoman. Thank you, and happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there today. Um, I want to uh, have a conversation with you um, here, and then we'll continue it on the other side of this break. But first up, you are against abortion, but... You believe that victims of rape and victims of incest should still have access to abortion. Do you think those exceptions should be backed up with a federal law? Well, absolutely. Um, I'm someone who uh, I am pro-life, but I do support exceptions for rape. I'm a rape victim myself. And uh, when you realize what's happened in your life, the trauma, the emotional, the mental, the physical trauma in a woman's life, 
um, that decision, she should make that decision with her doctor and between her and her God. And I've worked uh, to support those exceptions in my life, uh, not only as a state lawmaker, but now as a member of Congress. And South Carolina has a fetal heartbeat bill that was signed into law that had those exceptions because I told my rape story. And those stories are often missed um, and criticized. And women are attacked when they tell those stories. And um, that's something that I've talked about extensively um, throughout the years as well. I know you have, and I want to talk to you about those as well, because there's so much nuance mm -hmm. here. Um, I'm going to take a quick commercial break, and I want to ask you in more detail what kind of legislation you think could pass at the federal level, what needs to happen at the state level. So stay with us if you would. We'll be right back with Congresswoman Nancy Mace, so stay with us. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to continue our conversation with South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Um, Congresswoman, uh, you have spoken publicly about being molested when you were 14, raped at age 16, and how that has shaped your feelings and convictions about rape. Um, I read that you said that it took you 25 years to talk about your, your attack and that you... Um, only shared it with your mother and one of your good friends. So I wonder what you think about some of these restrictions in states that would require rape victims to provide police reports in order to obtain an abortion. Right. Well, I, I can't speak to other states. I, from experience as a state lawmaker, I know that South Carolina's fetal heartbeat bill would not have passed without exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother. And I told that story. I felt it was really a really important story, a story that's often missed and not told because women are afraid. And you can even see in, in public comments and on social media when I talk about it, the ways in which that I get attacked for telling that story. And one of the things that I think you know, partially that's missing in this conversation is is that when you have victims, when Ohio did their fetal heartbeat bill, there was a 10-year-old girl that had been found to be pregnant who had raped repeatedly by her father. And so uh, as a, I know it's part of the Republican Party platform, um, the vast majority of Republicans support those exceptions for rape and incest and life of the mother. And it's important for for some of us to step forward and tell those stories that are often missed yeah. um, in all of this as well. So to be clear, you would support a vote in Congress, federal legislation to enshrine those exceptions. Well, yeah, and I think that I think one of the things that's missing, and I'm glad that you're bringing this up in, in all the conversation, the media coverage about Roe v. Wade being overturned is that what this does, it's not an all out federal ban on abortion, but it puts it back into state legislatures and into Congress. You right. saw Congress a couple of years ago ban late term abortions, for example. And so uh, what this does is it puts it back to the states. It puts it back into Congress. Um, to, to deal with and figure out. And it was even exactly. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we all know was, a, was uh, working for women's rights and thought there was a constitutional right she for women did. to have an abortion, knew that Roe v. Wade was flawed. Yeah, she did. She said that. She said that back in the 90s. It was a mm -hmm. problem in her confirmation process. Um, but uh, So let's talk about states then. The governor of South Carolina, your home state, fellow Republican, said if Roe v. Wade is overturned, he wants further restrictions without those exceptions of rape or incest. He's considering re restricting abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Is that too restrictive? 
Well, I would uh, would only support legislation in South Carolina that had had exceptions for rape and incest and life of the mother. I don't believe that that would pass six weeks without of pregnancy. those exceptions. Well, that, that bill's already been signed into law, the fetal heartbeat bill for South Carolina that he signed, uh, I guess it was last year, had, uh, it, was, it was six to eight weeks is when the heartbeat is found, but that bill had exceptions for rape and incest uh, and life of the mother. So that law's already on the books in South Carolina and it'll be up to the legislature to determine if they want even more restrictions on it. But, but that's where this gets messy, right? If you're saying it's up to the states. Um, when we look at national polling, it shows that there is uh, mm-hmm. a majority of Americans who want to kind of keep the status quo. Um, at the state level, do you actually think the South Carolina legislature is in tune with public opinion here? Because, I mean, our polling shows more than two-thirds of Republicans say abortion should be generally available or available with stricter limits. Is it a political mistake to just paint this as as pro-life, pro-choice? Well, I think that some of the polling is murky, too. It depends on how you ask the question and who's paying for the polling. There is some polling out there that says that there are only 25 percent of Americans, some say up to 30 percent, that want abortion in every case. They don't want any restrictions. So that says to me that there's a vast vast majority of Americans that are okay with restrictions on abortion. We have some of the most liberal abortion laws in the world. If you look Mm -hmm. at Europe, there are many European countries that don't allow abortion after the first trimester or after 15 weeks. yeah, and yep. in Poland, for example, they don't allow any abortions unless they're, it's rape, incest, or life of the mother. Right, it's a and bit so of an outlier there in Europe. it is a complicated Europe. issue. It is. Right, I, but yeah, the Portugal's 12 weeks, yeah. Right. Um, Congresswoman, uh, I want to quickly ask you, um, you're being primaried by a Trump-backed candidate. Do you think your position on this is going to make it more complicated for you? Do you think President Trump is still the leader of your party? Well, my position on on life with exceptions for rape, incest and life of the mother um, is in line with my district. It's in line with the majority of, I believe, voters in my state as well. Uh, We've raised over four and a half million dollars for this race. My opponent has raised less than three hundred thousand. And, uh, you know, I'm working very hard to win this, not just by single digits, but by double digits. And I think he's been been given bad advice. My opponent lost, uh, had her top secret security clearance revoked for leaking classified information about our military. I live in a very fiscally conservative district and she voted for the highest tax hike in South Carolina history. And so there are very stark contrasts in our record and we've raised the most money. We have the highest polling and I've got 40 days to go until the June primary. I'm looking forward to winning. We'll watch for it. Thank you, Congresswoman. We'll be right back. We now turn to Jim Takelet, the CEO of defense giant Lockheed Martin, which makes some of the weapons the U.S. is sending to Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, thank you very much for saying that. We hear time and again one of the most powerful tools the Ukrainians have are these um, anti-tank Russian tank busting uh, missiles known as javelins. That's what your company jointly produces with Raytheon. How quickly can you scale up production to get more to them and to backfill what the U.S. has given up? Sure, Margaret. Well, the president visited us in Troy, Alabama to thank the workforce earlier this week. And we really appreciate what he's done for us. Uh, We are therefore on our side uh, accelerating our investment in that factory and in our workforce there. So we're already investing ahead of time uh, to uh, buy tooling, to expand the plant and also support our suppliers to get ready to ramp up production. So right now, our capacity is 2,100 Javelin missiles per year. Uh, We're endeavoring to take that up to 4,000 per year. Uh, And that will take a a number of months, maybe even a couple of years to get there, because we have to get our supply chain to to also crank up as we do. So Mm -hmm. we think we can almost double the capacity in a reasonable amount of time. Raytheon had said a different system, the Stingers, they couldn't even get going on ramping that up till 2023. But you can start when exactly? Uh, We're starting now to ramp it up because we have an active production line right now that the president saw. Uh, And also, we've got a supply chain that's active in addition to that. So we can start turning up the heat now and and ramping the production immediately because of those circumstances. You said, um, well, you implied you're you're basically doing on spec, right? Uh, right. You're anticipating that order is going to come through from the U.S. government. 
But you're a business person. You have to plan ahead. We don't know how long this war is going to last. Uh, CIA says, you know, Vladimir Putin thinks he's got to double down here. So how long are you planning for with this ramp up? Well, we're planning for the long run and not just in the javelin, because this situation, the Ukraine conflict has highlighted a couple of really important things for us. One is that we need to have superior systems in large enough numbers. So like javelin stingers, advanced cruise missiles, uh, equipment like that. So we know there's going to be increased demand for those kinds of systems Throughout, from the yeah, U.S. Or, okay. and for our allies as well and beyond into uh, Asia Pacific, most likely, too. The second really valuable lesson was control of the airspace is really critical. So the Ukrainians are managing to control their airspace. The Russian Air Force doesn't have free reign over the entire country. Um, and the reason that they don't is because the Ukrainians can still fly their aircraft and they also have a pretty effective integrated air and missile defense system. So products and systems like F-16, F-35, Patriot missiles, THAAD missiles, we know that there's going to be increased demand for those kinds of uh, equipment too, because the threat between Russia and China is just going to increase even after the Ukraine war, uh, we hope is over soon. Those two nations and regionally Iran and North Korea are not going to get less active. Probably they're going to get more active. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we want to make sure we can, can supply our allies and our country what they need to defend. So, against. So that. what do you need to do that? Because you did say supply chains an issue. I read right. that there's over what 250 microchips or semiconductors mm-hmm. in each javelin. That's right. Uh, we know there's an effort in Congress to get legislation to try to create more semiconductors here instead of relying on Asian suppliers. Mm-hmm. Um, can you do this scale up without that kind of legislation? It will be extremely helpful to have the Bipartisan Innovation Act passed, for example, because we do need to invest more in the infrastructure uh, in the U.S. so we have domestic supply, especially in microprocessors. And so our production line can run today, but in the future, we're going to need more domestic capability and microprocessor uh, not only design, but manufacturing, testing, et cetera, so that we have assured supply of those microprocessors in the future. And there'll be other in- inputs, too, but that's one of the highlighted ones. But we've heard on this program time and again from business people how important that is to get mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Congress still hasn't voted on it or voted it through. Right. Do you have any commitments from anyone here in Washington to to get this to the president's desk soon? Well, we know that there's a lot of support for it, both in Congress, in the administration. Because it takes uh, time to scale that up. Et cetera. Yes, it does. It takes years. Um, And so we're collaborating right now, for example, with Intel. It's one of our partners in trying to drive what we call 21st century security into national defense. And we're going to need the most advanced processors, and we're going to need them to be customizable to defense needs as well. Mm -hmm. So having that domestic capability, again, to go all the way through production and testing is going to be more important in the future than it is even today. You also make uh, F-35 fighter jets you referenced there. Germany is now trying to buy them. I mean, you, you have a lot of buyers in Europe right now, potentially. Do you have enough workers to meet all of these requests? We have enough now, but we know, like, for example, in the F-16 line as well that we're building up in South Carolina, actually, um, we need more workers. And so we're recruiting heavily. Uh, We've got a very strong workforce in Fort Worth, Texas, where we make the F-35. So that production line is running just fine now. We've got sufficient employees there to do that. But in other parts of the country uh, and ultimately in Texas, we're going to need to actually hire more people. All right. Uh, Thank you very much for giving us insight into your business. Glad to do it. Being here in person. We'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Every 10 years, the 50 states redraw their political boundaries based on population changes. Some states can gain seats in Congress. Others might lose some. The process is almost always messy as state parties try to secure an edge for the decade to come. CBS's Ed O'Keefe took a look at four redistricting fights. In four big states this year, two red and two blue, Democrats and Republicans couldn't agree on a redistricting plan, so courts were asked to intervene. New York's highest court tossed out a map drawn by the Democratic-controlled state legislature saying lawmakers did an end run around a nonpartisan commission. New York lost one House seat in the census, and although Republicans currently hold eight House seats, the new map drawn by Democrats would have made it difficult for Republicans to win more than four. They're trying to silence the voices of the people in this district. The court has appointed an official to draw up yet another map due this month. In Illinois, after the state lost a House seat, Democrats eliminated two districts where Republicans were expected to win. Republicans challenged the new map in court, but it's likely to stand. The GOP is also guilty of creative cartography. Texas is gaining two seats in Congress, and although minorities accounted for 95% of the state's population growth in the last decade, Republicans redrew the map to protect their incumbents by eliminating competitive districts where Democrats were making gains. The Justice Department and civil rights groups sued. Texas's redistricting plans will dilute the increased minority voting strength that should have developed from these significant demographic shifts. And in Florida, which also gained a House seat, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis insisted state lawmakers draw a map that eliminated a historically black congressional district, stretching from Jacksonville to Tallahassee, potentially giving Republicans four more seats. We are not going to have a 200-mile uh, gerrymander that divvies up people based on the color of their skin. That is wrong. Democrats have filed suit, but they're running out of time before November's elections. The black population in Florida that lives north of the I-4 corridor, their voices will be diluted. When the dust settles after this decade's round of redistricting, it remains to be seen whether either party will emerge with a distinct structural advantage nationwide. Now, whether the new lines are fairly drawn, well, that's a matter of political preference. For Face the Nation, I'm Ed O'Keefe in Washington. And we turn now to former Obama administration attorney general Eric Holder. He started a group in 2016, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, to help the party redraw congressional lines. And he has a new book out called, quote, Our Unfinished March. Good morning to you. Morning. Glad to have you here. Uh, you know, in the book, you write both parties have embraced gerrymandering when they were in control of state governments. But you say Democrats were caught asleep at the wheel when Republicans started investing 12 years ago in some of these local races. You know, critics call your strategy just sue to blue. That is just all about partisanship. How do you respond to that? No, ours is a fight for fairness. And yeah, we've brought a lot of lawsuits, successfully brought a lot of lawsuits in order to make sure that the process is done in a fair way and so that the American people actually pick their representatives as opposed to politicians uh, choosing their voters. And so Suda Blue, that's what they say when you're winning in court, which is what we have done at a whole bunch of levels. You think Democrats have an advantage then going into the midterms versus where you started out? Well, I think we certainly stopped the Republicans when they said they wanted to secure a decade of power in this next decade based on the redistricting that they were going to do. We've blunted um, that effort, and we certainly have uh, more fair maps than we did coming out of the last redistricting cycle. The thing that really worries me, however, is that we have 40 percent fewer competitive seats than I think we should have as a result of what both parties have done. You say this is about fairness, um, but you haven't challenged any Democratic gerrymandering. Ed O'Keefe laid out some of those I examples there. Um, both of the maps passed by Democrats were thrown out by courts in Maryland and in New York. Do you have a problem with what happened there? I indicated my opposition to what had happened, uh, what the legislature did in Maryland. I agreed with the, uh, the judge, what she did there. And in New York, what I've said is that th those are not the maps that I would have drawn um, in New York. My guess is that after the courts look at what happened in New York, you will see maps that are different, but not fundamentally different. I, I think you can't compare, however, what happened in New York and Maryland to what is going on in Texas, Georgia, potentially um, Florida, uh, Wisconsin, where uh, Republicans have really gone to town in terms of, uh, of gerrymandering, fundamentally different from what Democrats have done. How so? 
They are, if you look at Texas, which is getting two additional seats strictly as a result of the increase in the Hispanic population, mm -hmm. they have not increased that the power of Hispanics uh, in, in Texas at all. In fact, they have created more minority, more majority white districts uh, in, in Texas. The map that you see in New York reflects really a, a population shift, a hollowing out of the rural areas in New York, right. as well as an increase in the urban areas in New York. So there's a, a census basis, census bureau basis for what's happening in New York that does not exist in the, uh, in the Republican states. You heard there what is happening in F Florida and what Governor Ron DeSantis describes. He says that what he is doing with redrawing is race neutral. I know you strongly disagree. Are you saying the gerrymandering there is rooted in racism? It's certainly race conscious, uh, what he is doing there by doing away with a, um, a traditionally black seat is certainly a factor, uh, race is a factor there. But you think it's to intentionally uh, disenfranchise? That's certainly a component of, I think, their thinking. They, they're going after Democrats, and the fact that, that dem the Democrats that they're going after um, happen to be black, I don't think is necessarily a coincidence. The suit that we won in Alabama uh, was where we said that you should have additional representation for black, the black inhabitants of, uh, of Alabama. Uh, those districts were certainly drawn uh, with the thought that they would disenfranchise African Americans in Alabama. I want to ask you about Alabama, because um, as, as I understand it, the Supreme Court has tried not to directly get involved in what they deem political gerrymandering, but they have signaled a willingness to hear cases that involve issues of race. Um, there are still elections scheduled in November in, in the state of Alabama, even though the, the court will hear this case. Do you think that the maps being redrawn in Alabama will ultimately be deemed to be illegal and therefore the election should be invalid? Well, you know, it's an interesting Is that what you're saying? No, it's an interesting thing. They're going to have a, an election in November based on maps that judges, including two Trump judges, said were inappropriately, unconstitutionally drawn. The Supreme Court said too close to the election, and so we're going to allow the election to go ahead right. on those maps that were found to be defective. Now, what the Supreme Court will ultimately do with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which was the basis for the lawsuit in Alabama, uh, will remain um, to be seen. But this is one of the things I talk about in, in, in my book, this notion of us getting to some structural changes. We need to look, we need to ban partisan um, gerrymandering. We need to look at the structures of our democracy if we're going to try to, uh, if we're going to, try to save it. Well, you have a lot of different recommendations in the book, but I mean, it, it's a long to-do list. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem that you sketch out here, you say the entire democratic system essentially is broken, as I understand it. Unrepresentative Senate, unnecessary anti-democratic electoral college, gerrymandered House of Representatives, Panopoli state legislatures, and a stolen Supreme Court, a stolen Supreme Court. You say every person having an equal say in our democracy, one person run one vote is far from a reality. Yeah, I think you're saying true. the entire system is broken. What? So if Republicans win control of Congress in November, is that election does it not have integrity? Do you not accept the outcome of it? No, I, I think your premise goes a little far. I wouldn't say that everything is broken, but there I was reading from your book <clears throat> there. No, what I'm saying, I would say is there's a substantial amount of our structure uh, that needs to be repaired, that needs to be examined. Um, and I think we should, what I've tried to put out, point out in the book is that we have faced these issues before and that we've had heroes um, and heroines in, in our history that have faced similar kinds of issues uh, and through sacrifice, commitment, they have made a, a difference. And we have the capacity, I think, to make these kinds of changes, banning partisan gerrymandering. Uh, if you look at the Supreme Court where you have two seats, one stolen from the Democrats that Merrick Garland should have now, that, uh, that seat was not filled because it was too close to an election. And then Amy Coney Barrett was placed into a seat while people were actually voting. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I think need to be addressed. And what I talk about in the book is to say, look, we should term limit um, the justices, 18 mm -hmm. years, and that every president should uh, have an opportunity to nominate two justices uh, per term and to try to take some of the pressure out of this part, the partisanship and the, uh, and the confirmation process. Uh, Republicans would obviously disagree with your characterization of how that played out. But uh, doing Merrick Gardland, you mentioned he's now in your old job mm -hmm. as attorney general. <clears throat> there have been critics of him who say that he isn't being aggressive enough around the prosecutions regarding January the 6th. Do you think that's right? 
No one knows. I mean, you know, I, I have great faith in, in Merrick and in the people at the Justice Department. Um, we won't really know how aggressive they have been until they are before a camera and announcing a decision either to uh, indict certain people or, or not indict certain people. But here's my prediction. A at some point, people at the Justice Department, perhaps that prosecutor in, in Atlanta, are going to have to make a determination about whether or not they want to indict Donald Trump. There is going to be... Would you do it? Well, I think there's going to be sufficient factual information, and I think that there's going to be sufficient proof of intent. And then the question becomes, what's the impact of, uh, of such an indictment? I will, I'm an institutionalist. Mm -hmm. My initial thought was not to indict the former president out of concern of what, how divisive it would be. Mm -hmm. But given what we have learned, um, I think that he probably has to be held accountable. We'll leave it on that incredible note. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Holder, thank you for your time and, and for sharing your book. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. And to all the mothers watching, happy Mother's Day to you. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, Ukraine's Ambassador to the U.S. Oksana Markarova, Lockheed Martin CEO Jim Tacklett, and former Attorney General under the Obama administration, Eric Holder. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we are online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.